am I crying while watching a music video from the early 1990s? I'm sitting at my computer, trying to finish this play I've been unsuccessfully working on for over three years, when I drifted off the script and caught a headline that said, Whatever happened to the bee girl? This might be the most Gen X thing ever. The bee girl. The nine-year-old made famous by dancing in a music video dressed in a bee costume. The song is No Rain by a band named Blind Melon, if you want to look it up. The article I read talked about how she really owned her bee girl status, reprising the role a couple times as she explored her early career as an actor. She even had a bee theme at her wedding a few years back. Anyway, in the video, the bee girl is seen tap dancing in her bee costume. You can hear her getting laughed at and heckled by an audience off screen. She gets sad and starts her journey looking for somebody who is welcoming of who she is and what she has to offer. Spoiler alert, at the end of the video, she wanders into a field and stumbles on a group of people dressed like bees. They couldn't be happier to see her and they all dance together with gigantic smiles on their faces. I'd seen that video a thousand times as it was on constant rotation on MTV back when the M in MTV stood for music. It's a cute song and she's a cute girl, but I don't remember ever feeling anything when I was younger. But now, as I optimistically cling to middle age, I realize I never felt anything back then because I hadn't experienced anything that could relate. Watching the video today, I see I am the B-girl. My entire playwriting career has been me dancing in my metaphorical bee costume searching for people who like what they see. Honestly, my emotions these days live quite close to the surface. The Bee Girl story is not particularly deep, but it doesn't need to be. It's simply a good reminder that our people are out there. We just haven't found each other yet. It's up to us to keep doing our thing, dancing our little dance, and one day we, I, will stumble into that field and find what or who I've been looking for all along. And just like the Bee Girl, I'll dance, dance, dance with my friends and we'll have gigantic smiles on our faces. Friends, welcome to the Subtext Podcast. My name is Brian James Polak. This month I share a conversation with the incredible Kimberly. Before I get to that, some usual podcaster housekeeping. We have a voicemail. Did you know that? You can call us and leave a voicemail if you want. If you call, I might use it on a future episode. Some folks have called in the past, you know, to get things off their chest or talk about how they feel about the podcast. You can call and say whatever you like. Share a recipe or talk about a playwright you want to hear on the show. The number is 
505-302-1235. Give us a call. You can also find us on all the socials while such things still exist. And you can send an email if you want to communicate that way. Our email is thesubtextpodcast at gmail.com. And if you listen to any podcasts, you hear over and over, rate and review, rate and review, rate and review. So yeah, rate and review the subtext on Apple Podcasts. Think of it like a holiday gift for the show that doesn't cost you a thing. Okay, on to the episode. I first met Kimberly at a playwright retreat with The Lark several years ago. There were six of us at that retreat, and I've already recorded conversations with Rajiv Joseph and Crystal Skillman. Kimber is next, and I have the other two on my list and hope to connect with them one of these days. I won't say who they are yet. Anyway, I was able to connect with Kimber in person last summer in New York City. We met at a park at the northernmost tip of Manhattan. It was literally the last stop on the subway. There was a day camp full of kids playing nearby while we were talking, as well as a bunch of uh, construction. But it was still one of the nicest settings for a chat with a great playwright. You might notice this episode is a little different. About halfway through our conversation, I realized I wasn't really following my usual path of questioning, and I decided I was okay with that. Here is my conversation with Kimber Lee, recorded in New York City, back in July of 2022. Um, I moved here after I got out of grad school in 2011. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you move here to this to this neighborhood? No, 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 no. I had It's it's the it's the standard like crazy cheap housing yeah, find right. through a friend of a friend um, that that everyone has about New York. There there was a friend of mine <laughs> who knew someone who is not rich but owns a house mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and he said, "Oh, I'll rent them a room cheap," um, and it was essentially a whole floor of his townhouse right on prospect park mm-hmm. um so he gave us a really really good price for that um and that's where we lived the first two and a half years i guess mm-hmm. yeah it was uh, nice. so when i when i when i do the record these conversations i don't I intentionally don't do a lot of research because i don't want to my mind to like focus on specific <laughs> things and then yeah. um but what I usually do is I like I'll I'll at least like maybe just read the bio of uh-huh. of somebody and that will just plant a couple things in my head uh-huh. that if the conversation's going really badly I'll just like watch <laughs> I'll latch what on. What are you saying, Brian? Is this conversation going? It's badly? already like right now it's turned bad. <laughs> is it already? So this is where I'm going. No, what I'm saying is uh, I've been on the road for the past week and a half, and yeah. I've been like my mind's been all over the place, and I I um. I was like, oh, I've met Kimber. I like we hung out for a few days. I feel like I, I feel like I know what her. What more do I need to know? And about then, her? and then, uh, <laughs> I was taking the train up here, and I was just like, wow, I know nothing. <laughs> I know nothing. Well, this is the other 
thing. So about, this can't yeah, go bad. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> We've got to stand. But this, because I was thinking about you too, and I was like, "Oh, it'll be so great." But I think that I have a false idea of how well I know you because of how chummy you get on those residencies. You know? Mm, yeah. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. You're living in the same housing. You're eating in the dining hall together. You know? You're hanging out in a room all day together. Doing every karaoke. Day. And I was like, I don't yeah. really know him, so I'm like. I'm really fascinated about this, like, move to from L.A. to Chicago and, like, your whole writing life and how this thing is sort of running alongside of it yeah, as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole parallel life. Is this your whole job? Like, do no, you have to have a day job? No, I wish. I mean, actually, I don't know if I wish because I have a I have a day job that I really, really love. I write grants for a nonprofit. Oh, wow. And, um... Like a theater or no. another arts organization? No, it's like a community organization that focuses on oh, uh, cool. educating young people and getting them jobs. Oh my God, that's so good. And it's amazing and I love it. And it's like, it's almost like if you've seen the show Severance. Yeah. It's I like, have. it's a separate, it's a completely separate life. And I've worked in theater for so many years mm-hmm. that this was my first job outside of, like first survival job outside of theater in 15 years and oh i mean not only am i just working for an amazing organization but i'm doing something i'm good at and i'm successful at for an organization that's doing so much good for the community um that's amazing and then i have this podcast as like sort of like a parallel thing like as i'm writing and you know waiting for the world to like like embrace me this the playwright world or the theater world (laughs) I have this thing that every month, you know, I'm I'm releasing one of these, which is wow. still engaging, you know, with our with our industry, uh, even if my plays at the moment aren't, you know, mm-hmm. or in the times when my plays aren't, I still am in another way. And uh, do you see all that? Like, I'm curious about this thing you say about like the theater world engaging with your work. Yeah. Like, what does that? Do you, do you know what that looks like to you or like? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it looks like, it looks like, you know, when you send, when you send a play around, like somebody Mm -hmm. saying we like this or we're interested in this or we want to do something with this and, uh, doing a reading of it or doing a workshop of it or doing a production of it, like Mm -hmm. all the various ways that you can get around a table with people and, um, that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not mm-hmm. constant throughout the year and it's, and it ebbs and flows from year mm-hmm. to year. And, uh, and you just never know, you know, right. when that will happen. And so that's when this thing comes in. This right. is the constant. Um, I'm in control of this. This mm-hmm. comes out because I'm putting it out. Well, I'm, the magazine is putting it out, but I'm mm-hmm. creating it and sending it to them to, to put out. And I get to decide if it doesn't come out, you know, if it's not happening and over the years, and I have talked about this to on the podcast before, but I've like, Mm. I've been in and out of wanting, continuing to want to do it because in my, in my down moments in my career as a writer, um, Mm. these sometimes get hard Mm. because I'm talking to people oftentimes who are, very up in their career or legendary in their career Mm -hmm. right like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. tony's pulitzers things like Mm -hmm. things of that nature or like massive you know regional productions all over the country Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it is 
uh, it has been at times a reminder of where I'm not. Mm-hmm. So it would become like a, a little bit triggering and um, a battle to keep mm-hmm. pushing through. But I will say when I, and I've said this many times before, uh, Paula Vogel is one of the people mm-hmm. who saved me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was her intention. But when I talked to her almost four years ago now, mm. so this one moment has carried me for mm. four years when I've gotten to that point where I'm just like, I don't know yeah. if I want to keep doing this. Paula was the one that put in my head that this is um, something that I'm doing for our community of yeah. theater people. Mm-hmm. Um, even when my play isn't um, part of like a play that I've written isn't part of what's happening in our community. This is. Right. And right. Um, I'm reminded of that. I remind myself of that when I'm just like, oh, man, yeah. I got to do this again. It's so hard. It's such a beautiful reminder. I think. I mean, I think certainly over the past couple of years, but for however many years, one has been aware of the world being the world the way it is, there's a a great sense of, or I've heard expressed a lot from people that I know and and things that I've read, a great sense of helplessness and feeling like, what can I do to make a difference to whatever? Um, And I think sometimes we overlook the things that are at hand, you know, the things that it's like, what, what what is nearest you and what, what seems to have emerged for me a lot is just to be like, no, you don't, you're not a firefighter. Just because there's a fire, you don't need to run to the building. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe what you could do is you could set up a place where people could get food. You know what I mean? That's something you know how to do. And, and I think this podcast and what Paula was expressing is so true. Like, this is your activism. This is your contribution to the community this is what what you know how to do Mm -hmm. um and that's everything is everything is necessary everything is needed we need everybody Mm -hmm. right now right all of us yeah and so that's really that's really beautiful yeah and i get i get really inspired by and I, i i feel like you're trapping me in interviewing me in, on my own podcast, <laughs> and I'm really mad. No, but I'm just so curious. But 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 it's fine. I, I, I want to say this too because there's there are there are, there are people who I don't know who will send me messages mm. about about this, and you know, it, like not that the people I do know mm. when they message me, not that they don't matter, but there's just something about when a stranger reaches out to you, yeah. right? Like yeah. if you have a play out there and somebody goes and sees it and then they find a way to yeah. communicate with you, mm-hmm. that's so much different than when your friend is like, that was great. Right. Right. You know? Right. Um, and I get those messages sometimes. Yeah. And it's, re- it's such a reminder that uh, for every one of those people, there's a lot yes. who don't have Yes. Who aren't those types that will reach out, but are still feeling those same feelings where this is meaningful to them yeah. in some way. And I found out, I mean, I was doing this for two years before I was doing this with, for two years with American theater magazine before the pandemic. Mm. And then it's now been 
oh, you know, wow. multiple years of pandemic oh God, time. Yeah. And it was during pandemic time when people were listening to podcasts more, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. way more. And I, and like, I could tell my, I don't know the statistic, the listening statistics of this. And I mm-hmm. don't want, I actually don't want to know. <laughs> and I don't ask, but I receive messages and I right. just noticed that those were going up yeah, um, quite a bit. So that just told me that there were more listeners listening yeah. uh, to it. And I was like, I was like, yeah, it's, it's the time we're living in. The whole, this whole area of the park has decided we're going to fuck up their shit. I lo- see them over there trying to talk all nice and calm. I love I I love it because <laughs> we you don't realize how little really like it's not as dramatic on the microphone as it is okay. into our into I really our hope ears. So. It's progress. It's progress. No, but that's all like I know that for me when I listen to a podcast it's because I I I need, you know, like and especially if it's in a time where I'm feeling a, a way. <laughs> right, yeah. It's like having someone sit with you. You know, oh, it's sure, like having yeah. someone sit with you. And sometimes when you're in the most extremity, you don't need someone to tell you what to do or give you advice or to tell you inspirational things. You just need someone to sit with you. And yeah. that's just such a beautiful yeah. thing to provide. Yeah. Last, yeah. one of my favorite things. So I'm in, I'm in the city for like four days. I'm here for two more days. And one of my favorite things to do when I come here is just walk like because this mm. like, is one of the great things about mm. new york is mm-hmm. the most walkable city yeah and i was very excited to plug something into my ears and take a walk yeah. last night i saw a strange loop yesterday afternoon oh, the wow. matinee was that your first time yeah it? yeah and uh and then i was like oh it's gonna be great i'm gonna put some headphones in and take a long walk and then my headphones weren't working their bluetooth Oh, yeah. And they weren't connecting, <laughs> and I was so mad <laughs> because now I have to walk with nothing plugged into my ears. How are you supposed to walk just yes. listening to the world? Who does what, this? What kind of horror is this? No, I need to like it helps me be anonymous. <laughs> exactly. Right? Uh, it does feel like an invisibility cloak right, for some t- reason. <laughs> and they weren't working, and I was like, I can't do the thing I want to do. Yes. It, cha- it totally changed it, and I didn't walk for very long because of it. <laughs> Got to keep your shit charged up. Right. Um, <laughs> earlier, I'm not sure if we were plugged in and talking, if we were recording yet, but yeah, we were talking about how you and I met uh, at the Lark Playwright treat- Retreat in 2014, and you mm-hmm. were starting to say something about your life at the moment. Mm-hmm. You were going through something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was the beginning of a very long downward spiral. (laughs) It was like and it was it was very confusing and disorienting because it was right on the tail of some really lovely things happening. Mm -hmm. Like maybe the most busy I've ever been in my so-called career, whatever you want to call it. Um and I, I spent, I spent, I would say most of 2014, all, definitely all of 2015, 2016, 2017, kind of in a dead panic about trying to write plays. Like I, 
had the worst writer's block and and writer's block doesn't really even begin to describe Mm -hmm. (laughs) the way it felt especially because like for the first time in my life like people were expecting things from me or I thought that they were I felt responsible (laughs) and it just I I I've thought about it so much I mean I thought about it endlessly while it was happening why is this happening (laughs) right and then after i was kind of coming out of it i was just like what the fuck was that i'm sorry am i allowed to swear yeah sure okay fuck yeah i was just like what in the fuck just happened to me um and there's a lot of reasons like i could talk for a really long time about what i think that was but yeah i was I don't know if you remember that week, but I was just bringing in these pages, bringing in those pages. I don't know about this. I don't know. And I couldn't. The reason was because I could not get the thing that I have to have if I'm going to complete a play. Like writing the first 10 pages. It's it's not that it's ever easy, but I can do it. Right. But then beyond that requires. It's like the new part of a relationship. You know, it's it kind of flows and whatever. But then if you're going to go beyond that, if you're going to go deeper, the work sets in at some point. Right. Right. I just couldn't get past that point because there were so many voices in my head. I have thought back on uh, the dinner that we had after the retreat was over. We're back. Mm. We're back in the city. And like I was freshly minted out of grad school at the time. Mm -hmm. This is Mm -hmm. a month and a half after I presented my thesis at school wow. and here it is it was july it was it was july so it was yeah. like this time period 2014 so eight years ago and <laughs> and uh so me you and fredo uh were having dinner and then he left and we were still there talking uh-huh. and you said something that took me a long time to understand uh, you were struggling. So this relates to what you're talking about mm. right now. Like, you said that you were really, you had a bunch of commissions mm-hmm. and this was really hard for you. And I was like, what the fuck <laughs> is wrong with I'm this with you. person? I get it. How do you even get <laughs> no, one? I get it. I get it. And, and uh, I like, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't responding in a judgmental way but it was more like confusion yeah um because it seems like everybody wants that yeah right but there's a difference like when you get to this like you have to say yes to all these things and all of a sudden totally right totally and so like this would have been because i was so new to it all like i've since learned to not say these things to just anyone because mm-hmm. nobody wants to hear a playwright talk about they have so many commissions, just so many people want their plays. Nobody wants to hear that shit. Right. <laughs> and I get that now, but I was in such a panic mm-hmm. at that time, and it was so completely confusing to me because I'm with you. It's like the thing that everyone wants. It's the thing you're supposed to want, right? Um, but it's hard to. So it's just hard to under not. The problem is still a problem. Like what you're experiencing is still valid and real. Oh, totally. It's just there's like this disconnect to, in understanding right. like how those feelings could happen. Right. Right. It's seemingly like the, right. the thing, the, a thread that comes back um, through all of these conversations is 
is what is success yep. to us. Yep. And that is a success marker in a way, depending on your point of view, getting commissions from mm-hmm. theaters around the country. You sh- there should be a sense of elation. Oh, totally. Right? Totally. So this is this was probably the one thing I was interested in exploring with you is sort yeah. of like what was going on totally. at the I'm time. Totally. I'm into it. I'm down. Um No, and believe me, I spent a lot of time thinking about that and I I believe that it was a huge element of why I locked up. Because it was like this is what you're supposed to want. Why are you not like joyously skipping down the street with your good fortune? You know, it's like I have a very puritanical schoolmaster in my head mm. that likes to beat me and yell insulting things at me. So during that period of time, I too was confused <laughs> mm. about why I couldn't write and why I couldn't connect to anything I was writing. And since then, I've looked back on like chunks of things that I wrote during that time, and I'm like, oh well, this is not this is not entirely trash. Um, but at the time, I couldn't feel anything, mm. and I still don't exactly know. And I would be a fool to sit here and say, oh yes, I've I've now thoroughly analyzed it and I have all the answers because it it. it feels to me like it's lurking around every corner like it could happen to me again tomorrow mm-hmm. today later mm-hmm. um but i think that it was a combination of not understanding what it would mean to have money be part of the place where th- plays start inside of me to have money suddenly be involved in that situation because all of the plays that I had written prior to that were plays that I wrote because they came, you know, because I wrote them. Not because someone said, hey, we'll pay you money for this. Mm. And there's something about that, that that disconnected me from a privacy or something that I sort of need. Um, and also because it's my own, like, good girl syndrome of, like, I want to finish all my assignments on time. I want to fulfill everything that has been asked of me. Um, that I felt this tremendous obligation to, uh, which I since have not <laughs> continued to feel because a lot of them are still waiting. Um, but at that time, I was just... So all of these things, I think there was just a stew of all of that and feeling like whatever it was that happened with the play that these theaters read that made them go, ooh, we're excited about this shiny thing. I have to duplicate that and I have to be better and I can't do the same thing. I have to do something different, but it has to be sort of the same thing enough like the other one that they like it again and it has to be better and and I have to keep doing that. I just have to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it and I just I just lost it was like I had neuropathy in my writing soul. <laughs> I couldn't feel well, because anything. the 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 thing they saw in the play that they liked that play came about in an organic way yeah. through you, like you were just saying. Yeah. It came up through you, mm-hmm. and you like you can't replicate that necessarily. You can't on force it to happen, right? Yeah, yeah. you okay. can't force it. To, and none okay. of them were saying like you have to write about lawnmowers in the early 1950s. You know, nobody was giving me an. Everybody was just right. like, "We just want your next play." But even that was just like. 
you know, people, it's like come somebody coming up to you being like, what are your ideas? What are you thinking about? You yeah, know, and yeah, you're just yeah, like, yeah. and then you start talking about it and their eyes glaze over. <laughs> you know, you're like, okay, so that's not going to be interesting to everybody until I make it interesting in <laughs> my stuff. Because if I just start talking about how I'm reading all these old court documents from this island in Scotland in the 1800s, people are going to be like, okay, <laughs> good for you. Um, so yeah, so I think that the whole thing was a process of me understanding about myself and everyone's different. Like, I have friends that are so, so much, so much easier able to balance like the commerce with their creative environment. Um, and I struggle with that, but what, that's what I learned is that for me, I have to be very sure that I give myself enough time and breathing space between finishing a play and, you know, starting another play for something to collect. It's mm. like collecting water in a rain barrel, you know, I need something to be in there before I can do anything with it. And one of the things that happened to me during that panicky time is that I mean, I'm a generally pretty curious person. I'm curious about a lot of different things, and I tend to go down a lot of rabbit holes just for my own curiosity. But during that time, it was like every single tiny shred of an impulse that came into my head about something I was interested in, you know, my panicky insides would just jump on it and beat it to death. Like, are you a play? Could you be a play? Should I write a play? Is this a play? And I couldn't relax. It was like, oh, I'm interested in this right. tree. Is this tree a play? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not a healthy way to live because it just strangles every curiosity and just like living in the world as a human being. And so I just had to learn like, Kimber, you got to, yo, first of all, you got to calm down. Right. <laughs> and then you got to just give yourself some space, even though you feel like you're being lazy or whatever, what you require is space. To just be curious and be in the world and not worry about it. Do you know how you got to that point? Like from going through this challenging phase to sort of like the other side of it. If you could even say you're on the other side of it. Like was it just like slowly moving through the molasses and eventually you're on land again? I mean... I don't know where I got that metaphor. No, that's a good... <laughs> it's a really apt metaphor. I... I really wish I could say that it was because I started meditating or doing yoga or something yeah. <laughs> really healthy. But honestly, it was because I just, I ran myself out like a, like a gerbil on a wheel, you know, in a cage. I just ran myself ragged until I just couldn't move, you know, and I just had to lay there kind of panting and gasping until something happened. Mm. Um, and honestly... And this is kind of emotional because it's gone now. But if it wasn't for Lark, mm. if it wasn't for Lloyd Sa and Andrea Hebler and Krista Williams, I, I don't know when I would have come back from that. Like, mm. I don't know. I honestly don't know how I would have gotten through all of that because mm -hmm. it was pretty dire. You know, dire in the way of like a playwright. Which is not that dire. Well, right. In the, in the context of, of our world, that's <laughs> it's important. And if it's important to you, it's important. You know. Have you ever had 
troubles with periods of time where you found it difficult to write? And did you find ways to get through it? It's, I have been going back to when I started grad school in 2000, I started in 2011 and I was working full time. Mm-hmm. My program mm-hmm. wasn't for people who were working full time. It wasn't mm-hmm. one of those programs, but I had to. Yeah. Um, and so what I also, what it forced me to do is develop this discipline Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. before I started school, I wasn't the most, I I wrote regularly Mm -hmm. and I always found time to write. But when the fall of 2011 happened, it forced me into this discipline Mm -hmm. where I had to get up at five o'clock in the morning. I had to write in the hours the morning hours before work and school and everything started Mm. and um i went through all three years of grad school in that way and because you need to write every day to have like a regular rhythm and i did and Mm -hmm. and i would take weekends off or at least one day Mm -hmm. uh, a weekend um usually i mean now for sure too like Mm -hmm. i i'm not burning the candle at both ends um and so I, w- I became very, very disciplined as a writer, and I was able to create a lot of work. And then um, when COVID came, mm-hmm. weirdly, more time made it more time and being stuck in the apartment yeah. made it harder for me uh-huh. to write. So uh-huh. like during COVID time, it was the, it was really the only time that I actually struggled to write. I would revise and go back to old stuff. Yeah. But writing fresh was really, really hard for me because it completely upended my system. Uh-huh. Like my system was get up early, leave the house, write somewhere, go to work. Right. And that was great for me. Uh-huh. If I only wrote for two hours in the morning, I'm I'm getting if if that two uh-huh. hours is consistent, I'm getting a ton done. And then not leaving, not going to that another place, being stuck in stuck in the same right. place, it just messed with my head. Yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense. So, so yeah, it took me until um, recently to really get over that. So I was like, I was on a pace of like two two new plays a year. Holy shit! Um, r- like rough drafts. Yeah, you know, but beginning middles and ends Wow! and so i would essentially for you know for like a five or six year period it was um a new one in the winter and then a Mm -hmm. new one in the fall and is that like a thing where you would just like you just write every day or you write on your schedule your routine and then when it's done, you just immediately start another one? No. Or do you spend time with it before no. you set it aside? I would I would then bounce on to revising something else. Because oh, you know a okay. first draft of something yeah. isn't the draft you're sending around to folks. Like That's mm-hmm. the ugly one that you send to only your most trusted person mm-hmm. who's not going to judge the shit out of you. <laughs> so I like crank out that first draft, then go and work on the older thing. Right. And then maybe start like the pre-work on the new thing that I'm going to do in several months where I'm like reading books and watching documentaries and like thinking, right. you know, right. uh, the thinking is probably the most important part for me, like living mm-hmm. with something in my head for months 
Right. My ideal situation is in in the spring, I, I'm like, like you were talking about earlier, like, that's a play, that's a play, that's a play. <laughs> Working my way through all of that and figuring out the one that's the actual play. Mm. And then spending the rest of the year think, literally thinking about it. As How do I'm, you know when you're looking, thinking about all those things, like... Is there a thing that you that happens that you kind of know, like, ah, this is the thing that I want to write? I think it's different for different plays. Um, hmm. It's, uh, I think for me, it's sometimes a conflict or a relationship hmm. that emerges that isn't one that I've already explored. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I'm not... A, I don't. I tend not to write about topics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to write about feelings about mm-hmm. something, and and uh, if I explore a topic, it's really through a character mm-hmm. in a way. How about mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you figure out if that tree right there is a play or not? <laughs> a tree is most definitely. A play. <laughs> Which is not for me to make. Um, I mean, I think that is the thing for me is just figuring because there's a lot of shit that I'm interested in. That's just not. That's not. I can. T- I. I've developed a way of kind of feeling like I know that that's not a thing for me to make a play about. But I think that the. the <laughs> this is not very a very good answer because it doesn't. It doesn't have a lot of information, but it's just the play that I end up writing. You know, it's just the one that sticks enough that I get the pages out. And I, I have questions about how much this is influenced by whether the pages are due because I'm in a workshop or something, mm-hmm. you know, or in a writer's mm-hmm. group where pages are due uh, or have any other type of hard deadline. Um, but I've definitely had times where I'm like trucking away or think I'm trucking away writing one play and then something else happens and I start writing pages on that play and then that play just takes over and the other thing just goes away completely. So yeah, I so I completely relate to that because I, I spent um, the winter revising something that I've been working on for like two and a half years and that's a long time. Like working on it yourself or had you workshopped it with other people? No, because of COVID I did like a, I did like a zoom reading Uh and Uh then, uh, and then, I got a dramaturg to sort of consult with me a couple times over like oh, a nice. nine month period. Uh, so I had been, and while I've been going through that process with that play, uh, I've, I'm, I'm like queuing up the next things. Oh. I'm like, oh, I'm really excited to get to these next things. I had like two other things that were like emerging uh-huh. and I was getting excited about getting to the starting point for those. Do you take notes when you have those things rolling around? For sure. Uh-huh. Uh, my On my phone, because my phone is the thing that's always with me, so my mm. notepad has a bazillion mm-hmm. ideas mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in them. And then, and then some, like, like you were just talking about, this just happened a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Something else popped into my brain. Mm-hmm. This image popped into my brain, and it's in control now. And it's probably the thing I'm going to write now Interesting. because it, it popped into my brain with a central relationship and a central conflict uh-huh. that were uh-huh. crystal clear uh-huh. and something I had never explored before. Uh-huh. And I was just like, 
Son of a bitch. When am I ever going to get to those other two things? Like, I might now, <laughs> they literally may never exist because I will probably start this thing and I'll finish this thing. And then some other thing will pop into my brain. How much time transpires between having the, th- whatever, however it is, if it's a thought, if it's a, a feeling, an impression, whatever it is that is this, the little seed that you that you discover like what how and then say you have this seed and you write a little note in your notes thing like how much time transpires and also is it ever difficult to make that leap from the little energetic seed in the mind to okay now I'm like putting things on a page it's usually a long time mm. Long gestation uh, period. Yeah, it usually is. Like I remember, and sometimes, sometimes by sometimes it's not a long time, but that's all relative to the mm-hmm. person. Like I wrote a play uh, in 2016 mm-hmm. uh, about my hometown called "Welcome to Keene, New Hampshire," and it's like an homage to oh. our town, and it's like a response play to oh, our wait, town. I remember this? You were you're from New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah. Live free or die. Right, right this on. Whole thing. I know. It's happening. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and I remember clearly that it was the spring before that uh, wow. the idea started to formulate, and I didn't write anything. I just thought about it, and I read Our Town a couple times, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I watched a couple videos of filmed stage productions of Our Town, mm-hmm. um, and that was like my my prep work and then in february like so now we're nine months later is when i wrote it and that was like that's sort of like my ideal gestation period is wow. like nine months um but it always doesn't it work like that way you're having babies right? yeah yeah like that's, so. that's so and you don't feel like it you feel like it needs that much time to kind of become itself kind of thing well, you know what we were talking about earlier about like uh, other thoughts emerge. Mm-hmm. I think some of that is because maybe the thing you're thinking about isn't right, mm-hmm. and subconsciously you know that, and that's mm-hmm. why something else emerges and takes takes over. Mm-hmm. I think this longer gestation period, again longer for me, uh, nine months, is uh, the pro- sort of proving ground, right? Like mm-hmm. it's sort of like. It, if it lasts that long, right. then it's real and needs to happen. Right, right. Oh, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. I mean, it's like, who the hell knows, right? Because it's like, anytime I talk about these things, I love talking about them because I'm so, I'm so endlessly curious and fascinated with other people's processes. Um, and then I'm, you know, I'm fine to talk about my process for the most part, but also in a weird way for me, when I talk about it, I'm aware that there's something slightly fictional happening at the same time as I'm telling the truth. Like I'm not making shit up, but just the act of like narrativizing whatever it is that happens between me and making this play is sort of a, it's sort of a fictional story in and of itself. Because I don't actually know. Like, there's a lot of things where I could point to and say, like, you know, and I do. I say, like, oh, it was, you know, this image stuck in my head and blah, blah, blah. And that's basically what happened. But mm-hmm. really, 
I know now that there's there's more there's more that's going on because of all the times where it didn't happen. You right, know? right. You don't write about everything. You don't write about every single thing. Even things that you're deeply, deeply interested in, you don't write about. So whatever the thing is that opens the sluice gate or whatever to to allow me to get inside to allow me to plug in like i have to be plugged in i i actually don't know what that is and i i think every it's it's also kind of like moot because everybody's different right everybody has their own way of going about these things so i find uh playwrights to more often than not be cagey about process and and ideas and uh and i'm not like i'm i i could talk about this all day long Mm -hmm. um and i listened to a podcast by the comedian mike berbiglia and he talks pro like they're constantly he's talking to comics about process all the time and they're pitching ideas and they're like yes ending each other's like yep comedic conceits and like building jokes and i'm like this is the opposite of playwrights like when playwrights (laughs) get together they do not talk about what they're writing and where ideas are coming from and emerging and evolving unless they're in an environment that's built to do that like a playwright group of some kind you know right but in general we just keep it to ourselves and i find that i find that fascinating I mean, I'm sure it's different uh, for everybody. But uh, well, like... I was, I, I mean, I say Berbiglia right now because this is what I was listening to on the train ride up here. Mm-hmm. He was talking to, I think, a comedian named Jesse Klein mm-hmm. and about, about process. And um, I, I started to think it has something to do with the performative nature of the art form. Yeah. So they are naturally performers. Right. And I think that gives them a sort of like a confidence to share their idea. And they also workshop live on stage yeah. for the most part. Yeah. Uh, we do everything privately. Mm-hmm. Like the doors are closed. Nobody's invited mm-hmm. in until we're done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even then, like opening night of the world premiere, you're like, oh, shit, there's all right. this stuff I have to change right. for if and when production two comes. Right. Um, so we're, I think we're just, we're not performative by nature. We're private by nature and mm-hmm. our work gets done behind closed doors uh, generally. And we don't trust the audience who responds to the first reading of mm-hmm. our plays. Um, we might listen to them, but we're always just like, they don't, mm-hmm. they don't, they don't know. And it's, and it's just so different be- from comedians who are like, the audience response is right. everything for right. them in in figuring out how their jokes work and tie together. Mm-hmm. 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 I have a lot of thoughts about a lot of things you just said. You said a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you said a lot of stuff. I mean, it is it's just so interesting. I am obsessed with stand-up comedians, too, and I listen to a lot of stand-up comedian podcasts and stuff like that. Um watch a lot of documentaries or watch a lot of stand-up yes um it is interesting the the process the the different process and the 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 you know the demands like what they're 
what they're doing, but also this final verdict of the audience response, like the audience laughs or they don't, you know? Um, and I feel that way about theater audiences collectively. An audience member talking to you one-on-one -on -one after a reading or after uh, seeing a production is a different thing entirely. But collectively, while they're in the event watching your play, um, there's only a couple ways they can lie to you in that situation. Um, and I do think that one of them is with laughter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that there are some plays that they go in expecting, this is funny, this is going to be a laugh riot. And so they give you laughs, especially at the beginning, that have not actually been earned. They laugh because they know that is expected. Mm -hmm. And those laughs will trickle away until they are gone. <laughs> Um, but I think a laugh toward the end of a play is, is an earned laugh. You know, if we're talking about baseball, that's an earned laugh. That's yeah, an EO yeah, yeah. because at that point they're tired. They've been watching the whole thing and stuff like that. If you get a laugh out of them at that point, it means that they're with the characters, they're with your story. Um, and that's a genuine response. Um, mm -hmm. did you call it an EL? Yeah. <laughs> Your earned laugh average. I think we need to. I think I really like this idea. We need to start scoring. Yes, there needs and, to be a box score for plays. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Actually, that would be horrific. Yeah, yeah. Please, world, all... do not, do not do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it is such a different thing for everybody and it's so difficult to talk about it in a generalized way and maybe that's why people are cagey about talking about it. I also think that, you know, like I'm cagey sometimes because it's, depending on who I'm talking to, I kind of feel like, yeah, it's none of your business. <laughs> right. You know, it's kind of my private business and kind of going along with that thing I learned earlier about like there's certain spaces for my for my work for 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 me to be able to do my work um those spaces have to be separate from all this other stuff mm -hmm. because otherwise i'm i'm too i'm too susceptible to want to please people and that's no good for trying to make something uh honest so yeah i made the mistake literally like a week ago I was somebody was asking me about something I was working on mm. and I hadn't described it out loud yet mm. but I'm really far down the road on this on this piece and I started describing it and talking about it because I love to like I'll do that but I shouldn't have with mm. this piece and it sounds terrible and incredibly boring in the way and I could see it on the faces of the people I was talking to the eyes glaze over and they start looking past you yeah. oh and I'm like what am I doing I should have just said it's about a piano or whatever you know just like I don't know or like or like not even I don't or just say I don't know I'd be it's cagey fine. about it right it's fine I mean I don't know how we're like I have over and over tried to teach myself to be more cagey when I'm out in the world to like 
not feel like I have to answer every question that I'm asked and all this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And it's really hard for me. Like when, especially in certain types of context, if somebody asks me a question, I'm going to do my best to give them an honest answer to that question. Right. And I had to learn, it took some time for me to learn. It's like, oh no, oh no, honey, people don't want to hear the answer to that question. Really. They just want you to go, uh-huh, no, it's great. It's great. Everything's great. Right. <laughs> That's right. what it's, they it's, want. It's like a how are you question. <laughs> Right. You can't answer right. that question honestly because they—that's that's not, not what they're, what they're looking, looking for. That's not the they're looking to get past you, yeah. and this is the way to do it. Yeah, but no, but only recently, I was asked a question by a newspaper writer about a play that I was working on, and she wanted to get into my personal business. Like she was asking me personal questions because when you're a woman, <laughs> when you're a woman of color, you write a play. And there's somebody in the play that shares your demographic in some way. Everyone assumes that it's about you. That's you, yeah. So this person was asking me personal questions and I w- and clearly wanted me to give them this story. And I don't think they were being an asshole. They were just doing their job, you know, trying to find a, an angle on, to talk about the, the thing. But I was like, oh, no, that's, you know, I think the work speaks for itself and... And I, I'm happy to answer any questions about that, but I'm not going to talk about my personal life. Mm-hmm. And she was a little taken aback. Um, and I felt inside, I was just like, whoo. But then I also felt like, oh, that feels good, actually, to like set a boundary that is polite and respectful, but very firm about what I, what I want to talk about and what I don't want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think everybody should feel free to do that. Um, it's hard sometimes because you feel like you're being an obstacle to someone <laughs> in a way that you don't want to be an obstacle to them. But, but also, if it's your business, it's your business. You got a right to protect your business. Sure. It's also like the, walking that line when you've got something in the world that needs to be promoted mm-hmm. and doing mm-hmm. your duty, right, to, to promote right. that. Um. And I think that's another thing about, you know, going back to talking about the difference between comedians and playwrights, Mm. sort of like, we are often buried deep inside the work. And we want to talk about the work, which isn't directly us. It's indirectly us. And maybe we're happy to keep it that way. Whereas a comedian is like, that's them on some of them yeah depending on the type of performer that's them on stage and it's raw and vulnerable right right so talking about them and talking about the work is like the same thing right with us maybe not so much i don't know i mean this gets also into an area of like taking things personally right and how we're all supposed to have this thick skin where we don't take things personally because it's just about the work and this and that and the other thing. And it's like, I've tried very hard to adhere to that advice. I tried very hard for a long time. And then at a certain point I was like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, of course it's personal. (laughs) It came out of me. Like, how am I supposed to not feel personally about this? Now what you do with that feeling is another thing entirely, but it's like, I don't, it, it's, it seems actually now kind of like rude and ignorant in a way to tell a playwright, like, you shouldn't be taking this personally. It's not about you. It's about the work. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, where, 
I don't, that's, so everybody says grow a thick skin and I'm like, look, if my skin is that thick that you can't get to me, then I can't get out. Mm-hmm, right. And nothing else can get in. The things that get in are the things that I write my plays about. So if I thicken my skin, nothing's getting in, nothing's getting out. Mm-hmm. Nothing's happening. So I don't know, I don't know what to do with that advice. I think that every playwright has to navigate what they feel comfortable with and people have vastly different levels of comfort with how much they want to talk about the work, how much they want to reveal about their personal process, the way that they want to talk about it, the way that they want to talk about themselves in relation to the work, I think is all up for grabs and it completely depends on what's going to be most healthy for you as a writer Mm -hmm. and there are ways to like do interviews with people (laughs) say things about stuff where you don't have to go into things you don't want to go into Mm -hmm. you know um there's ways to navigate that and still feel like you know you can connect and give things to people and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff too i don't know you don't you sound like you don't have a a worry about any of that I am so freaking sensitive mm. that I perform thick skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all out of uh, a desperation to be liked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember my very first, my very first production received a review from like one of those, I'm not even sure if they're around anymore, but like free weeklies that's like super hip and cool that they'll use like, like, I don't know, hipster headlines and stuff like that. Mm. And, um, the, the, the play, the name of the play was, uh, bombs and manifestos. And it was about, uh, this person's relationship to the Unabomber Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the headline of the review of the play in this hipster mag hipster newspaper said bombs and manifestos explosive diarrhea (gasps) and that was my first review ever 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 and i laughed and laughed and laughed and i'm still talking about it because like the laughter was tear was like was like my version of crying because and maybe they weren't wrong is like even the worst part about it, but that's what they said and it has never left me and it's been a long Yeah. It should there's no reason that should still be with me. But it is. And because I have but I like well, Brian, you're taking that really well. Oh, it's no big deal. It's hilarious. That's hilarious. And That's then a go. defense mechanism. Oh, for sure. You gotta learn how to serve. You gotta survive. Like, like, like. Listen. You know how people's brains aren't fully formed until they're in their late twenties or whatever that is. Right. Yeah. I feel like as a playwright, that happens to you too. Right. <laughs> like when you first start being a playwright who shares their work with other people, even if it's just people you know or whatever the first time that you're taking those steps to like allow that vulnerability to happen of sharing your work in the world 
it's an incredibly formative time. It does not surprise me one little bit that that has stayed with you because that's pretty severe. Yeah. It's a pretty severe way for that person to have engaged with your work. And I don't, I don't know anything about who wrote that, but I get very protective of my friends and myself because I'm like, I don't want to hear from people who don't have any skin in the game. Yeah. Like if you don't have skin in the game, I don't, I don't need to hear what you have to say to me. The people whose opinions I care about, I will listen to and I will allow in and take in what they say because it's offered with context. It's offered yeah. with insight and intelligence. And it's also offered with generosity. That person was looking for clicks, you know, and it's just like. And the author of the no. review may not have even re- written that headline. Oh, totally. You know, but their the name. Papers do that sometimes. But I blame them, right? Yeah. Because their name was ass, uh, assigned to it. Have you ever received a review that was just so oh, wrong course. and personal and way off? I stopped base? reading them. Yeah. I stopped reading them because I was like, look, if it's bad, it's just going to be this poison in my body that I got to walk off for like a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just going to walk around for a week just feeling sick to my stomach. Every time I think about it, uh, it's going to change my... Re- and it was part of what was happening to me during those two, three years of writer's block was mm-hmm. like, you know, taking a glance at a couple of reviews and being like, oh, shit. <laughs> that doesn't make me feel good. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's helpful to my process. <laughs> and so, you know, my partner reads them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he'll give me a report saying like seems like they really got it like they got what you were trying to do um or he just won't say anything at all and and the thing of it is you know you can tell if they're good or bad without reading them Mm. you can absolutely tell because it's the way that people react to you you go around your player friends after a bad review and everyone's like, how you doing? <laughs> you doing okay? Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah, yeah. Or they just avoid talking about whatsoever. If it's good, then people are sending you text messages. They're sending you emails. Rajib Joseph was actually the one who warned me about this. He's like, listen, even if you don't read it, you're still going to know. He's like, the day after you open, just like go somewhere just completely disconnected from anything to do with theater. Like go to a museum and just spend the day looking at other kinds of art, you know. Right, yeah. Um, just be somewhere else. If you can go out of the country on a trip, all the better. <laughs> and I've always remembered that because I think it's a useful thing to do, to decompress after an opening night. Are you off social media? Yeah. Like completely, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my Facebook account could be revived. It's not completely deleted. There's some pictures and stuff on there that one day I want to go in and get. Um, and I keep, I kept it because I was like, oh, maybe I'll need to look something up or look somebody up and get in touch with them if I don't have their... But honestly, I haven't been on that thing in several years. Um, and I never was on Twitter or Instagram. It's not, and it's not because I'm so noble and I don't need social media. It's because I'm, I have no self-control and it would run my life. Mm-hmm. I have no, I have no self-discipline about that stuff. Yeah. It's bad. I kind of admire your, uh, your ability to not be connected. It's been like a very long, slow process for me to slow. Are you trying to? 
not be connected? Trying. Yeah. Yeah. Like with Facebook, uh, if I didn't have this podcast, I probably wouldn't be on it anymore. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah. And I think it's Twitter that is probably the heart. And I, yeah, I don't know. There's just something, there's something to me about, again, I like this, this episode is becoming too much about me. But it's no, too, it's not. But it's too this late supposed now. to be a conversation, but it's right? Too, I was just saying, it's too late now, so it doesn't matter. I am like, I get, I feel alone very easily. Mm. And I like to know that these certain people that I already know and like, and a lot of them in real life, yeah. are there. And this is my way sure. to like get to them right now. Right. Uh, despite the fact that we might live thousands of miles away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I and I do like that, and I like their pithy jokes, mm-hmm. and I and some of them are are the curators of the news I want. Like I trust their judgments and their opinions, so uh, that's what keeps me connected to it. I think people should be on it. Like I don't think anyone should should do or should not do anything that they. Do you know what I'm saying? And I, I was on Facebook for a long time, and that was starting to get, you know, so that's how I knew, like, oh, I can't do this Twitter. Twitter's like crack. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. It, it, and honestly, it's really possible that it's affected my, whatever you want to call my career, because I'm not there. Sure, I'm just, yeah. like, not in the virtual room where the conversations are happening, where people are talking about people and this and that and the other thing. I have no idea what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think part of me wanting to get out of it is because I don't I don't feel like I need to be part of the conversation all the time mm, anymore. Um, mm. I used to feel like I had, a, I had something to say, and mm. the more I said it, the more I realized that I'm not saying anything that isn't being said. You know, so mm-hmm. why why do I have to interject right. and, and insert my voice into a conversation where it's right. not needed? Um, so I'm more of a I'm more of a voyeur, and uh, and I think that's more of a comfortable place. And maybe this is where I stay forever. Like when I go when my Instagram changed a few years ago, mm-hmm. where now you might see my face like once a year on it. <laughs> You know, there are no longer, it's like, it's not, it's not necessarily about me. It's about, uh, other things that I'm thinking about or whatever, you know, um, that one I could shut down easily. It is an interesting thing though. I do feel like people will forget about you if you don't exist on social media. That's so weird. Maybe it's because you have this thing and it's like a thing that's out in the world also like Oh, interacting I, with it is like interacting with me. <laughs> it's the same. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I just... And I don't... I I, I feel like there's this also this weird, like... Kind of... What's that word? Sort of, like, virtuous, but, like, not virtuous. Not real. Like, people saying, like, oh, I'm... I'm I'm not on the socials anymore because I just, you know, blah, blah, blah. and I'm not trying to be that way. And I don't, right. I don't begrudge anybody. Like if it's working for you and it's yeah. good, like I yeah. get that the community is the virtual community is nice to have, 
uh, especially the few last few years we've been through. Yeah, um, it's just really challenging to navigate because there's yeah. so much garbage out there. It's just yeah. so, and so many triggering things are out there, and yeah. it's like you're taking a risk every time yeah. you go in. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, you wrote a play that was done at the Kirk Douglas Theater years ago. Different words for the same thing. Mm-hmm. So what it was, does it get the mm-hmm. title right? I was mm-hmm. so afraid. Different words for the same thing. <laughs> and I remember seeing it right after I met you. And it's a, and I mean, right after, I don't know. It was like in the period shortly after. So maybe it was 2014, 2015 when they, when they produced it. But it's, hmm. that play, that production had a moment that I never stopped thinking about. Hmm. Uh, ever and I, I was thinking about it a couple. I was thinking about it before I even like asked if you were interested in doing this because it just mm. pops into my head all the time. There's a there was a, a cooking scene at the end. It was like a family dinner, mm-hmm. and this big cooking scene. Yeah. And it's like it was just so. It was like one of the most beautiful moments of theater that I'd ever experienced. Mm. And it wasn't dialogue driven Mm. if i remember correctly it was Mm -hmm. it was just real it was just happening Mm. and it felt so beautiful and it's like it's one of those moments where i feel like i like i aspire to i aspire to it and it feels like something that isn't even written sometimes like you don't Mm. like you're not even sure what's where the writing is and where the production is Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. uh and i I was like questioning whether I should even bring it up to you because because of that like like I don't know if I'm complimenting your writing uh, or not because I don't I never saw the script mm-hmm, for this mm-hmm, for this play mm-hmm. but all I know is this is one of the most uh, beautiful moments I ever witnessed in theater Aww. like maybe like the top three or four things that always stays with me forever. Um, what? Yeah. Yeah, and it may seem like nothing. Like for you, it might have been nothing, or it might have even been. um, What are you saying? That's amazing. I just think about it all the time, and sometimes I'll be writing something, and I'm like, uh, and I'll say, "Is this a Kimber moment in my play? Could this be that?" (laughs) (laughs) Not even knowing if I'm crediting you. There's, I keep blowing a fly. That's why. (laughs) The fly is like, Um, oh, that feels good in my hair. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Yeah, so I so I'm like I'm like as I have you sitting across from me with microphones in front of our faces, <laughs> I, sh- I wanted to tell you that 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 I I'm profoundly grateful that you said that. That's I I'm a little bit um, speechless. It might be one of those things like you were saying earlier, where someone writes you about the podcast out of the blue, and mm-hmm. you're like, oh, there's someone is out there. Um, I have so many, like, that play for me was such a, such an incredible process that still to this day has not been topped in terms of we had the right actors, we had the right director, we had the right design team, everything was just fitting together so beautifully, um, and that moment is in the script, um, and it, it was in the play as written. 
um, the thing that the director brought to it that I just fell off my chair when he came up with this was... Was Neil Keller Neil the director? Neil Keller, okay. yeah. Um, you know, we have all these locations. That play has so many locations. Mm-hmm. And there were there was all this furniture that was being rolled on and off because it was meant to be a very fluid, flowing rhythm to the play. But in all these locations, there were all these tables that had to be there, all these different types of tables. And Neil was like, what if at the very end, when the kids are setting the table for the big dinner where everyone's going to be there, what if somehow these tables magically fit together and make one big table and not perfectly not so that it looks like it actually is one big table but just so that you can see like oh these pieces go together and they still retain their individual different tableness in the midst of being part of this big table and then everyone will gather and everyone will be sitting you know will do what you wrote and everyone will be sitting there and stuff like that and I was like oh my god (laughs) that is so amazing and so we did we had that whole sequence and after all this like all these conversations and conversations and people talking and people talking then it was just the sounds of the cooking and the kids and the music um bringing us into that final moment with everyone around the table and it's like one of my favorite favorite things that has ever happened to me in the theater like it was such an incredible um and so many things about that play were gifted to me by by neil yeah by his by his direction by his sensitivity by his willingness to like bring himself to the play and to like my vision of the play mm-hmm. and to build the design team and our our acting ensemble with such, you know, like it just, it was just, it's just, it remains my top experience ever. I could have sat in that moment forever. It's, it's really amazing that you saw it too, because like it's been such a long time ago and it kind of came and went and didn't really have a life after that. And so I was like, oh, I don't know, you know. Like you don't, yeah, and you move on to so many different things yeah, after that. You, yeah. you forget that people... Yeah. experienced it well and you never you never like, well i don't i don't maybe some people do but i never assume that anybody's having any kind of profound experience in one of my plays i always think the people are there just being like oh there's no intermission cool <laughs> <laughs> i was at a strange loop yesterday and somebody behind me was like uh, also because the uh the the musical talks about intermission like one of the songs is about two minutes until intermission's over or something like that and um there was somebody behind me that was just like this one doesn't have an intermission (laughs) (laughs) that was just like i wonder how many people are like they chose this musical over another one because they're going to be in and out quicker you know i wonder too if it's like just like theater people because theater people are like Oh my god, I had to see so many plays. But also, like, I think about this at the baseball game. Like, we were at the baseball game the other night. We were at City Field, and like, it was—I don't know—maybe the bottom of the eighth, top of the eighth, somewhere around there. It was very clear the Mets were probably going to lose, and all these people start getting up, leaving, and I'm like, dude, there's a whole other inning left. You paid for that inning. How are you just leaving right now? Are you insane? I mean, my money's worth. I'm going to get every second of this goddamn game. Are you kidding me? It's so crazy. So I'm like, you paid all this money to see this 
musical. Don't you want more? Like for your money? <laughs> right, <laughs> Isn't right. Isn't that good? Right, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know what's funny is this is the first one of these I've ever done where uh, I haven't asked you about your past <laughs> and how you came <laughs> to playwriting and Ew. and like your 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 journey into it and all of that. Yeah. And I'm not going to. Yeah. I'm not I don't going think to. it's necessary. I'm just going to. This is the first time I've really talked with somebody about like craft and ideas and well i thought that was what it was supposed to be like a conversation amongst playwrights yeah but it's my conversation with you and i drive it oh with questions do you though not this time (laughs) no you completely took over oh my god and I kind of like that. It's so good. I think this should no, happen more love, often. Like, it's a conversation. Like, I'm curious about you, too. Like, I don't want to know things about you, too. Sure, yeah. So we'll have beers sometime, and we'll tell each other our personal backgrounds. But, like, but like, no, this is good. Yeah. I really enjoy talking to you. Yeah, me, too. Thank you to Kimberly for spending time with me. That was one of the best conversations I've had with another playwright. Kimber doesn't keep any active social media channels or a website, so you're going to have to keep your eyes and ears peeled for when one of her incredible plays comes to a theater near you. Or you can order her plays from any number of play publishing companies. This episode was recorded and produced by me and edited by associate producer KJ Jarbo. The music from this episode is from Salmon Like the Fish. The theme song for the subtext is High by International Pen Pal. Thank you to Rob Weiner-Kent, Editor-in-Chief of American Theatre Magazine, a program of Theatre Communications Group. And thank you for listening. The play filling me up this month is The Gospel Women, a rehearsal drama by Tylee Scheider. I see a future for this play with productions all over the country. Keep a lookout for the gospel women.